John chapter 5, as you find verse 16, if you can and will, would you join us by standing? We'll read together, the Lord willing, verse 16 through 29. And I'm interested in the claims of the declarations of Christ before the religious Jewish leadership. This will be our fourth message in John 5 and our 40th message in the Christ series, beginning in verse number 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father." which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto, thee, uh, say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And he hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Thank you for standing. The claims of Christ or the declarations of Christ before the religious Jewish leadership. Let me divide the chapter. I've given it one uh, other division toward the end of it. And um, so let me divide the chapter. It will be a reminder. Then it will give you a preview of where we're headed today. And then we're, where we will be next week, uh, the Lord willing, uh, we'll finish John 5. We'll finish it, the Lord willing, next week. Uh, with the latter two divisions that I'll mention to you. You remember in verses 1 through 16, the religious leadership of the Jews are making charges against Christ. Um, he healed an impotent man on the Sabbath day. He violated not God's Sabbath, but he violated their Sabbath. He offended them. He didn't, he didn't consult with them. He didn't get their approval. And uh, so that offended them. It offended them that, they, that he had broken their rules. And, and then he claimed God is his father, and that offended them. As a matter of fact, that's what they'll crucify him for. That's why they will call for his crucifixion is because he claimed equality with the father. Probably when he said that, they're already mad. They already want to slay him, the Bible says in verse number 16. Then when he claims 
He and his father both worked. His father worketh. He said, and I do too. He said, we don't take the questions. They've been watching him. Uh, but it's all been somewhat uh, subdued. They're no longer subdued with it. They're not hiding it anymore. They're out in the open with it. They want to kill him. They, they want to kill him. And so uh, this begins taking place at the beginning of the second year of his ministry. As he heals this impotent man who had been in his infirmity some 38 years. There he is by the pool of Bethesda with a number of people, a multitude of people that had needs. Yet Christ heals this man. And this marks the beginning of open persecution. So the religious leadership of the Jews make charges against our Lord. Verses 116 as a whole. Our text today, verses 17 to 29, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, makes claims or, again, declarations regarding himself before the Jewish leadership. As I've said three times prior, um, he begins his comments here in verse number uh, 17 to the end of the chapter. It's one of the greatest Christological discourses in all the Bible. And he's not, he's not aiming this discourse. He's not speaking it to the man that was healed. He's speaking it to, a, uh, to an angry group of religious Jews. We're coming to that. Now, next week, the Lord willing, verses 30 to 37, there's the confirmation of Christ's person that is given. These confirmations are testimonies. His own works will be one of those testimonies. Then verse 38 through 47, there's the condemnation that Jesus will pronounce of the Jewish leaders. Uh, they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. They were like a battery with no charge, as we mentioned Wednesday evening in the service. As a matter of fact, they were whited sepulchers. The outside looked good, looked prim and proper, looked religious. Um, they could have served the community well in an elected position of some sort. They were whited sepulchers, but they were full of dead men's bones. I remember we were in the Holy Land, perhaps... Uh, I know Amanda will remember, and perhaps Holly and Celia Beth remember when they were there not that long ago. Right in the vicinity of where he spoke those words. There are, there they are, the whited sepulchers. Uh, but their tombs is what they are. They are, they are an, an entombment that sits above the ground. Those bodies, those bones were on the inside. No doubt he probably gestured when he would make that statement. He said, fellas, this is what you are. You're as whited sepulchers, but you're full of dead men's bones. So we'll deal with that uh, next week. Polished on the outside, dead on the inside. Consider with me, uh, again, just, just a thought or two I'll add to. I, I won't rehearse everything we've looked at, but in verses 1 to 16, this, the religious leadership of the Jews, as they made their charges against our uh, blessed Lord. In verses 1 to 9, you will remember... For those who are not here, we give this for your benefit too. Verses 1 through 9, you'll remember there was a miracle in which to, in, to rejoice. The miracle of healing of this impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. He's been in prison for 38 years. We don't know if he's a 60-year-old man, a 50-year-old man, a 90-year-old man. But what we do know is he's had this infirmity for 38 years of his life. He's been locked up to his situation. And the miracle is a public miracle. There's no sleight of hand. There's no trickery. I listened to the testimony of one of the times that Johnny Erickson Tata gave in her home church to a ladies group. 
And she was talking about, she was so desperate after she became a paraplegic and was out of the hospital. And one of her friends had taken her to one of these healing conferences. And she said, those of us who were bound to a wheelchair, we were taken over to a dark area of the stadium. And she said, I kept noticing that the people that were being healed was brought out of a particular area. She said, it was obvious that it was staged. She said, I'd have given anything. If the Lord had told me to rise, take up thy bed, and walk that day. She said, the Lord didn't do such of a thing. I want to tell you, there's a lot of charlatans out there that will take you for every dime you've got. And it's all for a show. They're making money off the backs of earnest seekers. And uh, I don't know what they're going to get when it comes to standing before God one of these days. But I wouldn't want to be in the area uh, when that happens. But what Jesus does for this man cannot be disputed cannot be disputed at all for 38 years he's been a a cripple jesus has healed him he set him free sent him on his way Uh, terrence and i were talking in the hallway there at the sanctuary hospice it's amazing the grace god's given to it and i commented about that he said well it's just god and certainly he is just god he's fixing to say goodbye for a span of time to his wife and then gather in on the other side with her one of these days and, uh, but I said, you know, I said, dear brother, I said, that God's going to set her free. He's going to set her free from the, from the suffering and disease of this world that can be found. He's going to set her free. And so it is with every child of God. One day he shall set us free. But here on this earth, sometimes he's pleased to deliver us. He told this man in verse 8 of this chapter, he said, rise, take up thy bed and walk. Told him to do something he hadn't done in 38 years. Told him to do it, and he did it. Thank God he did just that. And then the, there was a public protest by these Jewish leaders. Verse number 10 begins with the words, the Jews. Now, I've already pointed this out, but it is worth mentioning again. When John uses this phrase, the Jews, it's in reference to the Jewish leadership uh, in his gospel. You remember, they see the man carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Verses 9 and 10, they ask, basically, what are you doing? And then in verse number 11, who told you to do this? He didn't know. Isn't that interesting? Jesus healed him. He didn't even know his name. Yet Jesus healed him. And then later on, he goes to the temple, and Jesus goes as well and finds him there. He learns his name, and then he, he goes back to the Jews, and he tells them it was Jesus. Jesus, he's the one uh, that healed me. And then in verse number 16, of course, this open Persecution of Christ begins, and again, this takes place at the beginning of Christ's second year. These Jewish leaders were repulsed, verse number 16, you read it with me, where the Bible says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, there should have been rejoicing. Here's a man set free, healed. There should have been rejoicing. And we believe this man is rejoicing and grateful for what the Lord's done in his life. I believe that's why you find him in the temple. In verse number 14, it's the Lord finds him in the temple. A life had been changed. and Christ gets honor. We should say glory to God for it. Anytime the Lord does a work, we should rejoice. We're told in the word of God to rejoice with them that rejoice. When someone is saved by the grace of God, God's people, the natural response ought to be, For you to join in and rejoice with that one, that individual. When someone is restored, 
we should rejoice. When someone's healed, we should rejoice. When someone's been helped of the Lord, when he's extended a a bit of mercy and kindness and favor to a life, we should rejoice with those who rejoice. These religious leaders, they gave their heart away. They're not rejoicing, but rather they're repulsed by what Christ has done because of all times he did it on Sunday or did on Saturday. Saturday, excuse me, that's the Sabbath. And I'm convinced they'd have been repulsed if he'd done it on Monday or Tuesday. That's just their makeup. Um, repulsed by Christ's healing on the Sabbath day. The problem is they were married to their traditions. I don't say much about this because I've said something about tradition. Uh, the previous two messages on the life of Christ out of this chapter. But the problem with tradition is we tend to get to the place we love our tradition more than we love the truth of the Scripture. And what we'll do is we'll elevate, and we have to do it this way. We have to say it that way. And if we don't, well, you know, it's just there are consequences to be paid because of it. But when truth becomes a secondary matter in any person's life or in any church's life, then there needs to be a reevaluation. The truth ought to be paramount, paramount to you today. If I go to the doctor, I want him to tell me the truth. When they found cancer in my body in 2007, I finally got to the oncologist, Dr. Jones, and Kim Harden says, anything you'd like to say to us, any questions you have? I said, the only thing I want to say is, if I ask you something, I want you to tell me the truth. As a matter of fact, my words, I don't know if they'll remember, but I remember well. I said to both of them, I said, if you just decide you're going to cut my head off and throw me in the ditch, give me a little bit of fair warning, I may have some business needs tending to before I die. So if I'm going to die, don't hide that from me. Just shoot straight with me. They shot straight with me all the way through it. Truth ought to be paramount. When it comes to the Word of God, you should not want that watered down to avoid the feelings of two or three. You should not want that watered down for a crowd's sake. Uh, you should just want to know what the Bible says. The text ought to have a voice. Uh, when the preacher reads a text, he ought not depart from it, never coming back. You ought to know something. He ought to be able to say something, something at least, about the text of Scripture itself. But many elevate tradition. Um, um, to a lofty position. And I'm going to say something. I think I've earned the right to say what I'm going to say. I'm bent toward the old-time way. So don't throw a songbook toward me. But I'm going to tell you what the old-time way has done by and large. It's elevated man. God would do something and man would take the credit for it. And God would do something for a church and man would take the credit for it. And I'm going to tell you, if, if you're saved, Jesus did that. If you have a measure of health, Jesus did that. If you are, have the ability to get up and leave your home and go work a job, work 8, 10, 12 hours a day, the Lord did that for you. You didn't do him a favor. He did you a favor. He makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He does the same with his rain. And the Lord deserves any praise. If you serve in him, give him the praise for that. Don't elevate man. Elevate God. All glory belongs to our blessed Lord. Now, thank God for the efforts of faithful servants down through the years. Uh, but we've come to the place we elevate me or you more than we do the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank anybody for the faithful service. I've done that for nearly 12 years here. As a matter of fact, I've done that ever since I've been pastoring. I've been preaching since 92. I've been saved since 90. I've been preaching since 92. Pastoring since 92. And I think I've done that and been fair about that down through the years. But I tell you... May we be reminded as to what Jeremiah 
uh, wrote, and I gave you this a few weeks back, but it won't hurt to hear it again. Lamentations 3, 22 through 25 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. The problem with the Jewish leaders is they were blinded by what they wanted. They were blinded by their tradition. Jesus will call them out in Matthew 25, and he'll call them blind, leaders of the blind. It doesn't matter which side of the road you're in the ditch on. When you're in the ditch, you're just in the ditch. They were blind, leading people to a place that was no good. It was damnable. Verse number 16 and verse number 18. This is why I say they were furious at Christ. Look at verse number 16. They want to kill him. Verse number 16, then verse number 18. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. Doesn't start, stop there, does it? The Bible says, and sought to slay him. Sought to slay him because he had done these things of all times. He did it on the Sabbath. Verse number 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Their disdain for him. Their distaste for him. Their fury toward him. Again, he never subscribes to their traditions. He always observed the law that the Father gave. But he does not bow to the law of man, nor the whims of man. They're furious. They had not been included. They had not been consulted. They felt grossly insulted. They're blinded, blinded to the ways of God. Had the word of God right before them, and yet they were blinded. You remember we went through, while we're right here, we went through uh, uh, the Sabbath and the laws. They, they initially, there were 39 laws the Pharisees had added to the Sabbath, added to what God had stated. The Bible admonishes us, both in the Old and the New Testament, not to add nor take away from the Bible. If the Bible doesn't say it. We don't have any business saying it. We don't need to be adding to. Uh, but if the Bible says it, we need to say it and believe it and stand on it. May not understand it all, but we bow to the truth of the Word of God. We're Bible believers. That's what we come this morning to do, was open our Bible and open the assembly. Open our Bible back here in the prayer room. Open the Bible in Sunday school. Open the Bible for our public reading of Scripture. And open the Bible for the pastor to stand and uh, exposit the Word of God. But you remember how they had taken out of context the, the law of the Sabbath. You remember that? We gave you three times, and we'll look at it in time to come. But God's law allowed for the acts of necessity on the Sabbath. Jesus made it plain in Matthew 12. We gave you those verses. Also in Matthew chapter number 12, God's law allowed for acts of worship. And if it didn't, then the temple priests were out of sorts and in sin every Sabbath. And then God's law allowed for acts of mercy on the Sabbath. Even the lowly ox, the beast of burden, could be pulled out on the Sabbath out of the ditch. And so... May God help us to maintain a balance when it comes to Scripture. Verses 1 to 16, the religious leadership of the Jews made charges against our Lord. Verses 17 to 19, the Lord Jesus makes claims. He makes declarations regarding himself before this Jewish leadership. This discourse, this Christological discourse, this Christ identifying himself before these angry Jews. Um, he didn't back up, did he? 
He could have found a much more easier crowd, amiable uh, crowd to have preached to, but he didn't back up. He gave them the truth. Uh, you did this on the Sabbath. You've broken the Sabbath. You claimed equality with the Father. And he said, I sure have. And by the way, let me tell you something else. And he went ahead and gave it to them. And at the same time, you see the tenderness of Christ because he's trying to reason with them. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they will not listen to it. They will not listen to it. He makes statements regarding himself and his equality. He makes statements, if you will, about his divine authority in this passage. It's the Christology of Christ given by Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? What statements there are here. First of all, if you will, of course, let me say this before I move on. If you're not right on Jesus Christ, you're probably not going to be right on a whole lot more in your life. If you don't know who he is, I used to go to church with a man who did not believe in the eternality of Christ. He did not believe in the preexistence of Christ. He believed that Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem, and that's when he came into existence. That's wrong, friend. He was messed up in some other areas. If you'd listen to him, he'd, get, he'd tell on himself. We said in our prayer room here a week or two ago about Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, if you can get straight in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, you probably will be straight throughout the Bible. If you can get that right, when it comes to the matter of soteriology, the matter of salvation, if you can get Romans chapters 1 through 8, if you can get an understanding of that, you probably are going to be right everywhere else. And I will say this, if you don't understand who the person and work of Christ, if you don't understand who Jesus Christ is, you're probably going to be messed up on a whole lot of other things in life. Can I get a witness? Are y'all listening this morning? That's who we've come to worship today, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. The book's about Him. Genesis is about Him. Exodus is about Him. Leviticus is about Him. Numbers is about Him. Deuteronomy is about Him. All of it is about Him. Notice verses 17 and 18. Jesus declares His equality... With the Father in his person. Verses 17 and 18. Verse number 17. There's Christ's declaration of his equality. But Jesus answered them. My Father worketh hitherto and I work. It's interesting what he did not say here. He did not say our Father did he? Uh, he didn't say your Father. He didn't even say the Father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But he said my Father. You remember when, when Mary and Joseph left, left Jesus behind and they would find him four days later at the age of 12 in the temple. He wasn't sitting at the doctor's feet. He was sitting in their midst. He's asking questions and they're asking him questions. And no doubt those doctors, they, they wonder, now how in the world can you know so much about the Bible? He could have said, I wrote the thing. That's why I know so much about it. It's my word. They were astonished at him, the Bible says. But you remember when Mary came, she said, she said, we've been looking for you. And he said, uh, he, he, he just assumed they knew where they could find him. He said, wish ye not that I must be about my father's business at the age of 12 as a human boy. He already realized his mission in this world. And that's what he'll be crucified for is that statement. Wish ye not that I must be about my Father's business. Jesus Christ and the Father are one. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But the Jews are going to crucify him for that. He never shies away from the truth of it. It's interesting what he does not say. It's interesting 
What he does not say because he knows these men that, is, that are in the midst are lost. He's going to point that out at the end of the chapter. They're lost. If they'd have believed Moses, they would have believed him. If they really accepted the Father, they would have accepted him. But they didn't accept either one. It's interesting what he does say. He says in verse number 17 to them, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Again, God does not take a day off. Let me read some verses to you. You don't have to turn there. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 4, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved, but he keepeth... Uh, he, keepeth, he that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, uh, he that uh, keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Creation rest on the seventh day of creation week, uh, displayed by God. It's a picture of salvation. God did not rest because he was fatigued or because he was weary. He rested because the work was finished. It was complete. So it is with Christ. There's nothing to be added. Your baptism. Hopefully we'll fill the baptismal pool in a week soon to come, very soon to come. And baptism offers no saving virtue, does it? The Bible says the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And joining a church does not add any saving virtue. Reading your Bible doesn't add any saving virtue. The only thing you can add to salvation is the sin that you have in your life. Bring it with you. It's all you've got to contribute. Jesus has grace to cover it. Where sin doth abound, grace doth much more abound, thank God. So the Jews were offended. God takes the Sabbath off, they thought. He didn't take the Sabbath off. He took the Sabbath off. It had been a meteor, ripped every one of them one Sunday. Or one Saturday, excuse me. <clears throat> Aren't you thankful for rest? I couldn't help but pull down some old notes out of the book of Hebrews and glean this past week in my study regarding rest. In Hebrews 3, verse 7 through Hebrews chapter number 4, you'll find rest, the subject of rest is dealt with. There is creation rest. Hebrews 4, 4, he that spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. The word rest is found at least 11 times between Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 11, through Hebrews 4, verse 11. There is conversion rest. Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10, there remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. Aren't you glad for that? For he that is entered into his rest, he, hath, he also hath ceased from his own works. I remember those days as God did from his. I remember those days. Visiting because of my neighbor, visiting Buchanan Baptist Church out, out here in the northwest part of the county. I thought I was to try harder. I thought I was to pray more. I thought I was to read more. Maybe do more around the church. I thought I was to do more. I thought I was to do. But the thing about Calvary is it's already been done. And if you know who you are in Christ, if you know what Christ has done for you and you are a believer, then you rest in that. I've never had much for those who try to cause doubt in the life of a young believer. 
The relationship's by birth and cannot be altered. A young believer that may have sin in their life. Um, you don't twist their arm, get another profession of faith out of them. You help them learn to repent and trust Christ. Rest in Him. Someone who is lost and is a member of a church needs to be saved. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Conversion rests. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have, right now, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one day, of course, there'll be a celestial rest. Of course, the writer of Hebrews, I won't deal with it this morning, but he'll deal with a Canaan rest too, won't he? It's one thing to come out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea, something quite different to get out of the wilderness and get over into the promised land and Canaan's not a picture of heaven. Canaan's a picture of the life that Christ desires for you, child of God, and desires for me. There's Christ's declaration of equality in verse 17. There's the Jews' determination to kill him, verse number 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They want to kill him. Can you imagine such a thing? The creature wanting to kill the Creator. Man won't need to kill God. Man won't need to kill the Son of God. You know as well as I, a lot of people worship a Jesus that's not found in the Bible, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses do that. The Mormons do that. Countless others do that. The heart of apostasy is the denial of the Lordship of Christ. That's at the heart of apostasy and unbelief. It's at the heart of bitterness toward God and the things of God and the Word of God. Man can be religious and yet still filled with hate and lost without God, without hope in this world. May God deliver us. Jesus declared his equality with the Father. And then Christ makes declarations, affirmations with authority. Verse number 19 through 29. I'll give you most of this very briefly, but I want to point something out to you. I've tried as we've come to the different Gospels in this series to show you or speak to you about unique features of the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke and also in John. Remember the great I am statements are found in John. Those one-on-one -on -one personal interviews magnified in the book of John. There are seven miracles in the book of John and all seven miracles in the book of John point to salvation found through Christ in one aspect or the other. They're the double verilies. There are 25 of them. All unique to John's writing in the book of John, the gospel of John. Three of them in this chapter. Uh, you'll, notice, you'll notice the three of them. Verse number 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Verse number 24, verily, verily, I say unto you. Verse number 25, verily, verily, I say unto you. Three of his 25 double verilies found in this chapter. All 25 double verilies unique to John's gospel. You'll find it in the synoptic writer's uh, gospel. This verily, verily is a double emphasis, a repeated emphasis, a special emphasis. Verily, verily can be stated amen, amen, or truth, truth, or of a truth, of a truth. They're given to emphasize importance of what's being stated or has been stated. So here we find Christ giving three double emphasis, affirmations of truth. Tom Hayes has written a little thing on, I'll give, you, uh, give it to you, written a little thing on the double amens of Christ. 
He said Jesus is now who he's always been. So his word means now what it meant back then. He speaks right now to us again. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. I love that. In verse number 19 through 23, we'll read the verses individually here in just a moment. He declares, he affirms his oneness, his unity with the Father. Now remember, if you look back at verse number 18, remember preceding this passage, the Jews, they sought to kill Jesus because he said God was his Father. And in verse number 18, and thus made himself equal with God. Let me say this, you cannot separate the Father from the Son, nor can you separate the Son from the Father. As a matter of fact, while I'm right here, it's not in the text, but it is in context of Scripture, you can't separate the Father from the Son from the Spirit. You can't separate the Son from the Father and the Spirit. You can't divorce the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's not an it. Jesus said, in He, when He is come, He shall reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You can't divorce the Spirit from the Father, nor the Son. They coexist. There's divine unity. Verse number 19 through 23. Let me say this, and we'll read through these verses very briefly, and I'll bring the message to a close today. But you remember after Jesus made one of his I am declarations in John. Those are unique to John too, aren't they? Uh, you remember he, he just had stated to Thomas, he said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You remember on down a couple of verses in John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be all right. Is that what he said? He said, show us the Father, and it suffice. We'll be all right. Show us the Father. I love this. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now sayest thou then, show us the Father. According to the writer of the book of Hebrews, in chapter number 1 of his writing, he is the express image. He's the exact uh, image of the Father. If you want to know what the Father looks like, look at Jesus. Verse number 19, the Father and the Son work together, he says. Look at verse number 19. We'll read it. Read through these verses. Verse number 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, of a truth, of a truth. I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also the Son doeth. Everything the Father does, the Son does, the Holy Spirit does, by the way. Even in salvation, every person of the Trinity is involved. All three. According to New Testament writ. Verse number 20, to read it. The Father loves the Son, he says. Verse number 20, for the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Verse number 21, the Father and the Son alike raise the dead. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Verse number 22, the Father's committed all judgment unto the Son. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. There it is. You can bow to him as Savior and Lord in this world, or you'll bow to him as judge at the great white throne judgment of God one day. Verse number 23, the Father and the Son are both to be honored, the Father and the Son. Watch this, verse number 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. We don't serve a generic God. We worship the Father through the Son. 
If we deny Jesus Christ, we've denied God the Father. But if we honor the Lord Jesus Christ, we honor God the Father. Look at verse number 24. Jesus declares he affirms himself to be the Savior, the Messiah. Watch verse 24. He says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, of a truth, of a truth, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He is the sent one. Don't look for another Savior. There are no more saviors. He did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is only one Savior. Sometimes, some of us have two or three families on our hearts this morning. Sometimes a doctor will come out and will say to the family, the news is bleak. Can't offer you much hope. But it's not that way. For you today, if you're here without Christ, it looks bleak and dark without Christ. But there's a Savior to be sought and found. At his feet, you should find yourself crying out for his mercy. For those of us who are saved, the future's not bleak, but it's mighty bright. Amen? 25 to 29, I'll give you this briefly. In these verses, Jesus declares he affirms resurrection truth. 25 to 29 speaks of a physical resurrection. The resurrection of the physical body, both of the lost and of the saved. Now, I'm not one of these that believes in a general resurrection, nor a general judgment. I don't think you do either. So he does does clarify. Verses 25 to 28, there's a resurrection day approaching. Watch what he writes in verse number 25. He writes, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming. And now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Lazarus is a picture of that, is he not? He cried, called Lazarus by his name. He said, You, Lazarus, you, get up and get out here. I can hear him roll over on the slab and say, Wait a minute, Lord, they got me tied up. I'm on my way. Somebody said if he had just said, Come forth to the dead, every one of them would have got up and saluted. But he called Lazarus out. And I'm going to tell you something. One of these days, in the rapture of the church of God, he's going to call all the dead in Christ, these that's buried next door out here on the lot, and those that are buried across the miles, he's going to call them forth if they were buried at sea, if they were torn asunder by bears or lions or whatever it was, or burned at the stake. He knows where every particle is. He will gather it all back together and turn that uh, mortal into immortality. And I'm telling you, we'll be given a glorified body. You won't have to open a door for that body. You won't need a 747 for that body. You won't travel at even the speed of light in that body. You'll travel faster than the speed of thought. Lord willing, some of us are going back to England in May. Some of them going in April. Some going in April. I want to take a group of young preachers from this area next year. If the Lord lets me live. The rapture takes place. We'll let Ronnie Owen take them. Some of us were talking the other day about Bun Hill Fields Burial Ground. Everybody ought to go there. You ought to just get, you ought to Google it and look it up. There are some of the premier minds that's ever lived and affected this world buried there. Last time I was there, uh, Amanda and I broke my heart. They're, they're, the tomb markers are molded over. A 
but we were talking about Bun Hill Fields burial. In my mind, immediately, I was standing there looking at John Gill's tomb marker. I went there that quick in my mind. Can you imagine the glorified body? 1 Corinthians 15 describes that body. Resurrection days approaching. Look at verse 28 for time's sake. He said in verse number 25, the hour's coming. Verse number 28, marvel not at this. He said it in verse 25. He says it again in verse 28. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Resurrection will awaken dead bodies. Resurrection means to stand again. And then lastly, there will be a resurrection of the just and there will be a resurrection of the unjust. There will be a resurrection of the redeemed. There'll be a resurrection of those who are damned. You look at it, verses 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The saved, according to this, the saved are going to experience the resurrection of life. Look at, it, look at it there in verse number 29. They that have done good into the resurrection of life. This isn't saying that you're saved by works, but rather that the works of the saved are counted as good. We know that by, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Verse 29, the lost will experience the resurrection of damnation. Look at verse 29. And they that have done evil into the resurrection of damnation. It doesn't indicate that a lost sinner goes to hell because of their works. But it does classify their works as evil. Even their righteousnesses, Isaiah said, are filthy rags. I, I think often, I, I pray, I trust you do the same. I pray when I'm leaving our community, if I'm going north on 41 or if I'm going south on 41, um, I, I pray for various families and homes as I pass them. I've done that about all my life, I guess, since I've been saved at least. And, uh, and I often think about people who I know by their own testimony, they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in the free pardon of sin. I think about the fact that if they're not saved before they leave this walk of life, hell is their home, according to the Word of God. Hell is their home. There'll be no mercy. There will be judgment. There'll be different degrees of judgment. Better to have never heard the gospel than to have heard and spurned the gospel. But I've often wondered, uh, I get obituary notices from a couple of different funeral homes. Sometimes I get a name. I, I pray for every notification I get. I pray for every family. I read their obituaries. I pray for every family. And often wonder was this individual were they lost or saved they were lost it's too late now you don't do anything about it now as the tree falls so shall it lie I was thinking this morning early sitting at my desk and, and I'm right at done I was saved in February of uh, 90 just a couple of weeks shy of my 23rd birthday. I was 22 years old when I was saved. Um, I flipped a pickup truck, you know, where the curve, you know, leaving Ecru, heading toward Ecru, where Cherry Creek is. 
I come around the curve, a buddy of mine, he had a Trans Am. He used to take it faster than anybody I've ever ridden with. But I tried it. Had a stepside pickup. Had a jacked up 327 in it. I loved it. I loved that stuff. But I lost control. I hit a covered. I can take it to the covered. It had been raining. There was water standing. It hit on the front end and smashed it up good. Smashed me up good. As a matter of fact, I had to have surgery to pull my nose back out of my face. I could have died. As a matter of fact, when, when people saw that there was a truck turned over and twisted there, they were out in the water looking for me. How I got to the neighbors, I have no idea. God could have took my life. If I called some names, some of you might recognize them. When I sold the first tr truck I had, I bought and paid for it. I was 15 when I started working public. I mowed yards and trapped in the winter for money when I was in junior high school. I stacked wood and brush for Mr. Howard McCord from the time I was 11 until I turned 15. When they offered me a job and I filled the application out at Foodway, I told Mr. Mays when I hired in, I'll work every day of the week. I'll come er in early. I'll stay all night. Whatever you need, I was glad to be working in the air conditioning and in the heater. In just a few months, I made assistant manager, and when they went 24 hours, I was the one that oversaw that in the 11th grade. When I sold my first truck, there was a bullet impression. I can show you right where my truck was when the boy shot at me. It was about this far beneath the window on the driver's side. I heard it when it hit. It didn't penetrate the door. Now, that could have been six inches higher, Brother Ronnie, and I'd be in hell right now. I've had my life threatened since being in the ministry. Were it not for the restraining hand of God, I could be in eternity right what I'm saying is this. God has been merciful. If you'd have known who I was, and some of you that was here Wednesday heard this, I promise you I'm trying to quit. Last Sunday when I lost my train of thought, you know how I get when I lose my, usually I'll say two or three things, come back to it. What I was trying to talk to you about last Sunday when I lost my train of thought, Brother Doug Jones, when you used to get in the car and go with him, he's like a daddy to me. We'd go sit down on the front row. He'd usually sit on this side. I'd sit beside him, a pastor or somebody would come up, and he'd say, Kevin, show him your driver's license. I'd hung on to those old driver's license. Amanda knows what I'm talking about. You can tell where I come from when you looked at them. I'm glad I lost the things somewhere along the way. I was reading again this... Um, past week I was in First Thessalonians for just a little bit and reading about uh, from the south edge of Africa used to be what was called the Cape of Tempests mariners would try to take their ships, crew and cargo in and sink them many mariners lost their lives there there was a Portuguese captain that he thought there has to be a safer route southern edge of Africa needed to be accessed so he studied the waters he too had been through the Cape of Temptis nearly lost the ship he studied talked to older mariners 
He came in a different route, kind of took a big circle and come in to miss the turbulence. They now call it the Cape of Good Hope, and everybody that accesses the southern border of Africa, that's the route they take. They take the Cape of Good Hope. I remember being on the road, being en route on the Cape of Tempest. There's a little heavyset preacher kept telling me about the Cape of Good Hope. And I cried out as a 22-year-old young man didn't know up from down. And Christ saved me, and I've got safe access now into the shore of heaven. And I rejoice in that. Dear heart, while you have time and opportunity, whether you be man, woman, boy, or girl, would to God you'd call upon Christ for salvation in these moments. Miss Angie, would you come? Just want you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed.